Lord, we do thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your word, and just the privilege now to sit at your feet and hear these words that you've penned for us. And so uh, we don't take them lightly, and uh, we pray, Lord, that we would highly value your word as we know you do. And so um, thank you for it, and help our time now to be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We've been taking a fairly slow journey through Colossians so far. Uh, this is our third week uh, in chapter 1, and so we will finish chapter 1 today. Um, and um, just as a matter of review, we've been talking a little bit about Colossians is kind of about Jesus is the head of the body of Christ. And so there's, there's references throughout the New Testament of the body of Christ, and the body of Christ, uh, probably the, the most descriptive is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where the body of Christ has many parts, and just like the human body uh, functions, um, you know, whereas there's value in the individual parts, there's also obviously a lot of, um, well, the best way I can describe it is, like Barney Five says, you know, the spleen is down there like where everything's all real close together, right? Everything kind of works together, and there's lots of parts in the body of Christ and all that. But clearly, Jesus is the head of the body of Christ. And as we focus on the head, Jesus, it puts everything else into perspective. And, and I make you suffer through the same analogy we talked about the last couple of weeks. You know, it's if you're looking at a scope, we have a scope in our house uh, that kind of looks at a hawk's nest across the creek, right? That's kind of off in the distance. And the more, I want to just hammer this home, the more we focus in on the hawk across the creek, the more everything between here and the hawk kind of gets blurry. Right? That's how a lens works. And so um, that's really how life works. Now, I want to be sensitive along the way, right? Because your thing that ought to be blurry may not feel quite so blurry, right? Or my thing that maybe ought to be blurry in the context of the big scheme of things doesn't feel all that blurry. As a matter of fact, it might feel pressing. And the reality is, as we journey through life, that's just a part of the journey. And it doesn't take away the truth of the fact that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith, that Jesus will, will save us and sustain us, that Jesus will carry us to the, to the destination, which is, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. But the reality is, Sometimes it doesn't always feel that way. And so we're kind of journeying through that as we navigate this idea of focusing on Jesus as the head of the body of Christ. And so in Paul's case, as he's, reading, as he's writing the book of Colossians, he's dealing with a lot of false doctrine. And uh, specifically, a lot of the false doctrine, historians say in the, in the church at that time, were primarily centered around this idea of what they called Gnosticism, which is everything spiritual is good, everything physical is bad, 
right? Like, if I can kind of reach this higher state of nirvana somehow, you know, I got to do it by sort of denying my flesh and, and all that. Is it good to deny the flesh? It's early. I get it. So, is it good to deny the flesh? Yeah. So, but do we reach some kind of higher state of nirvana by denying our flesh? No. No. We just deny our flesh because we want to have fellowship with God. And uh, the more we indulge our flesh, the more that gets in the way. And so it's really nothing more complicated than that. But the Gnostics were, you know, part of if everything physical is bad and everything sort of spiritual or, you know, uh, mystical, if you will, is good. What do you do with a Savior who came and physically was born? and physically died and then rose from the dead. You don't know what to do with that, right? And so what you do, as, as cults tend to do, they kind of get weird with the reality of Jesus Christ and who he is. So how does Paul do that? Does Paul trash the bad doctrine, and does he, does he squash this one, and does he do that, and, and kind of, you know, like he's walking through the woods, kind of beating away the weeds? Is that how Paul does it? No, Paul does it by doing the way we ought to do it. He focuses on Jesus. He gives us a description of Jesus. We understand a counterfeit if we have a clearer understanding of who Jesus is. And that's really the approach that he takes that I think is the approach that's so healthy for us because we don't, you know, if I said, listen, I don't want anybody to try to reach nirvana through some metaphysical whatever. I can't even talk the language. <laughs> through some means, right? through some non-physical means, if I tell you that, you're all like, yeah, whatever, that doesn't apply to me, right? But if I say, hey, let's focus on Jesus, and everything else in life gets blurry in the context of Jesus, now we're relevant, right? And so Paul is relevant for us as uh, the Bible is, is very clear about that. So let's review from last week. And we'll just read it, okay? Last week we read verses 15 through 20. It was only six verses, so we can read them again. He is the image of the invisible God, he being Jesus. He's the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Some of your versions say all things hold together. I, I like that. And he's the head of the body, the church. We talked about that. Who is the beginning? The firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross." There's a mouthful in those verses. And if you want more detail, I'd refer you back to last week. But now we pick up in verse 21. It says, And you who, were once, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. So now he moves to, and you. Uh, you know, he started in verse 15, he. He now moves in verse 21, and you. So what about us? So he's talking specifically to the Colossians, right? But this applies to us, right? And you who were once alienated and enemies 
in your mind by wicked works. Do you feel like that describes us before we came to Jesus? Church people say yes. What do normal people say? Like, I'll tell you what I felt. I felt like I was an okay guy. Maybe a little clueless, but okay. Except on weekends. Right? I never thought of myself as an enemy of God or alienated from God. Right? Here's my first point I want to make. Yes, I was an enemy of God. If I'm not surrendered to him, I'm an enemy. I'm alienated. I'm not a pretty good person for the most part on the right day if you don't mess with me. That's another word for enemy of God, alienated from God. And I want us to point out also, you were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Now, so you, can, you could say we're splitting hairs a little bit, but I'm kind of intrigued a little bit by uh, the prepositions here, okay? In your mind by wicked works. That tells me, if I think about it long enough, that it's possible that my wicked works could affect my mind, my thinking. Is that possible? Yes. It's very possible. Turn back to the left. John chapter 3. You know, for a long time, as a Christian, I always had this idea like, why don't some people get it? You ever ask yourself that question? Some people just don't seem to get it. Like, it may seem totally obvious to me that, you know, this world needs a Savior and His name is Jesus. It may seem obvious to us at, at times in that way. And yet, you know, to other people, it's maybe not quite, quite so obvious. And, you know, Matthew chapter 7 says, judge not lest you be judged, right? So we don't judge anybody for salvation. But I think it helps us understand the world a little bit, maybe, and even maybe have a little more compassion if we understand these words, John chapter 3, starting in verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world. His name is Jesus. The light has come into the world... And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And so I think there's a principle here whereby if I'm walking in darkness, sin, my flesh, if I'm walking in darkness, I really don't want to walk in the light. Because what's, what's the light going to do? It's going to expose me. It's going to force me to make a decision. It's going to force me to a, come to a reality of all my flat spots, all the, all the ways in which I'm an alien and an enemy of Christ. Coming to the light is going to make me have to deal with that. And sometimes I don't want to deal with that. I'd rather just stay in the darkness, 
fly under the radar, not have to deal with my real problems. Instead, spend most of my life dealing with superficial symptoms of my real problem. What's my real problem? Sin. I'm a stranger and an alien until I come to the light. And so there's a thing that happens, I believe. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world. And the world loved, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's why they don't walk in the light. And when we don't walk in the light, it affects our thinking, right? And so there's, a, there's, there's this, this sort of series of, of things that happen in our, in our lives and in our minds and in our hearts that we walk in darkness. We stay in darkness. We start to think darkness. Our emotions are tied with the darkness. And so I think there's a real principle here. It may be just, you know, the way the prepositions are translated, but I think it's a real thing where he says, you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. And so I think we need to be aware of our flesh and we need to be aware of our mindset, of our thinking of our worldview, of the things that we think are acceptable and the things that we think are not acceptable. And let me just say, as I'm thinking about this, those things that we think are sort of right and wrong, we are at a sort of a cultural challenge now, I believe, in the body of Christ, where the more we lean towards, um, I want to be careful, the more we lean towards just trying to make us feel good about ourselves, the more we depart from the Scripture, because it just feels better to tell cute stories and, and you know, whatnot than it is to actually be face-to-face -face with the reality and sometimes the conviction of the Scripture. The more we depart from the Scripture, the more we have this sort of Christian culture now that evolves. And so we've got sort of, I think in, in many ways, we've got secular culture, right? Everybody understands what that means, right? We've got secular culture. It's real, and it's alive, and it's in our face at times. I think we also have Christian culture, which is distinct from biblical culture. Now, it may be splitting hairs, and, and sometimes biblical culture can be legalistic and, and all of that, but I think we've got to be very careful that we look to Scripture for right and wrong as opposed to the culture of our church. And I, I pray that we never be that way, but the culture of our church or of our environment or whether or not we listen to Christian radio or just all of that. And so, anyway, that's probably more than you wanted to hear about that, but it's possible for our mind to be affected by our deeds, uh, whether good or bad. So he says, he goes on, you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Yet now he has reconciled. The Greek word there means to be reconciled fully, fully. And this is important. That may seem obvious to you, right? But I want us to hang on that idea for a minute. Well, really for the rest of our time together here. Jesus did, okay, a quiz, okay, quiz. How much of the work of salvation did Jesus do on the cross? Not 90%. No. Not 92. It's 
like an, feel like an auction, right? 95? Right? How much? All of it. All of it. We're in church, so we know that that's the right answer, right? Raise your hand if you knew that that was the right answer. All of it, okay? Keep your hands up if, I like the eagerness, keep your hands up if your life always reflects the idea that you are good with and understand and accept the idea that he did all the work of salvation and you live accordingly. Right? You see the idea here? We, we know that Jesus did all the work of salvation. I think there's a thing in our lives as Christians where we just <clears throat> need to help, help him out just a little bit to get him over that hump of the last little bit that he saved us from, right? We live like that sometimes. So the word means all, reconciled fully. The, the work is done, and our job is now to live in that place of reconciliation, not to make ourselves more reconciled. We'll say that again. Our job is to live in that place of reconciliation rather than to make ourselves more reconciled. He goes on. In the body of his flesh through death, right? So the physical death in Jesus uh, would have been a slap in the face to the Gnostics. Uh, for us, it's, it's our salvation, our very salvation. To present you holy. So, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through faith to present you to holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And so the purpose of Jesus' physical death and bodily resurrection was to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight, right? And so that's the place where we live. We live in that reconciled place. He did that to present us that way. So turn back to the left, Ephesians. Two books to the left. Chapter 2. The first three verses of chapter 2 sound a lot like the verses that we just read in Colossians, uh, chapter 1. Basically, the first three verses, you were sinners, you were alienated from God, you were enemies of God, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So the purpose of his death was that so we could sit together in heavenly places. But when does that start? When we get to heaven? It starts now. We're seated in our minds, at least, right? We don't sit and do nothing, right? We don't sit there and do nothing and hum till we die, right? 
but we're seated in our minds in terms of being saved. We're seated in Christ. We're seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the age to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. He's going to demonstrate his grace in our lives. And we were reconciled. It's done. And we get to settle in there. He wants to demonstrate his grace in our lives. So these are concepts that we understand. These are concepts that we have talked about many times before. But it's important that we settle them into our hearts. Not just understand them as a biblical truth, but settle them in our hearts. The idea is we have been saved. We have been completely saved. As a result of being completely saved, the reason God did it was to demonstrate his grace through us. And how often do we, on the other hand, because we think we're pretty good people, we don't like to be called alienated or enemies. We don't like that terminology. So we think we're pretty good. And really, our Christian journey is to make ourselves a little bit better. Whereas, on the other hand, the biblical truth is we were lost, we were dead, we were aliens, we were all of that, we were separated from God, we were in the darkness, all of that, and by His grace, and His grace alone, His death on the cross, His resurrection, He saved us, and He demonstrated His goodness by making us alive. I like what one guy said, he said, Christianity doesn't make good people better, it makes dead people alive. And so He's done all of that, but I think we could agree that seems like a subtle difference, but as we understand it and the more we understand it, we, it really plays out pretty dramatically different in our lives. See, we, if, we, if we see it as, I was a sinner, I was way lost, I was a wreck, I was, you know, I was a mess. I was a Romans 3 sinner. There is none righteous, no, not one. I was on my way to hell with no hope. And he saved me. And he brought me from darkness to light. And he's made me sit in heavenly places even now so that he could demonstrate his love and his grace in a guy like me that would bring glory to him. And so all I do now is I just reflect his glory. Doesn't that seem more peaceful? Doesn't that seem like less striving doesn't it seem like everything else just got a little fuzzy the more we understand that? But if we're trying to, to basically have some part in that reconciliation, then we're not sitting in heavenly places. We're, up, we're pacing, right? Ephesians chapter 2 doesn't say we're pacing in heavenly places, right? We're chewing our fingernails in heavenly places. No, we're seated in heavenly places. So verse 23, he goes on. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, under which, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, it says, if you continue in the faith. Ah, I knew there was going to be a qualifier here, right? You say. 
I knew it was too good to be true, that, gra that grace and just sitting there in that chair, enjoy being a recipient of God's grace and, and just reflecting his glory, right? That had to be too good to be true, right? I knew you threw, you'd throw one of those works trips in on me if you continue in the faith. And as we said before, sorry if it's redundant, some of us are wired. I mean, there's a truth that man is responsible for his action. Is that right? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, Galatians tells us. Whatever man sows, he's going to reap. If he sows to the flesh, he'll reap corruption. If he sows to the spirit, he'll reap everlasting life. That is a biblical truth, right? On the other hand, God is in control. God's the one that saves us. God does the work of salvation. God does the work of my daily life. God orchestrates events. We read last week, God holds atoms together. God holds the world together. God does all of that. Which of these is true? Well, they're both true. How? Somehow, I don't know. I don't fully understand. And so, the way that plays out in our lives... Some of us are a little more wired towards responsibility. We understand that biblical truth of God's sovereignty, but we say, but what about, what about, what about, what about, right? And we're, we're more wired that way. We wanna, we're doers. We're doers. We wanna accomplish things, right? On the other side, there's the people that some people are just a little more wired towards understanding and and kind of living in that place of God's God's grace, God's rest, God's taking care of everything, right? And if we're not careful, you can understand you could kind of go off the deep end this way, or you could go off the deep end this way. Is that fair? The reality is both of these are true within however God wires us, but they're both true. And so we read this, we read, we read statements like this, if indeed you continue in the faith. And so if you're a responsibility person, you say, see, I told you, if you continue in the faith. If you're a, a God's sovereignty, God's in control, God's going to take care of everything person, you're like, ooh, I don't like that, right? But let me just, first of all, I'll tell you, he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, in the faith. We're not talking about salvation, right? So in the faith, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about enjoying fellowship with God, right? So whatever man sows, he reaps, right? If I want to live completely self-indulgent in my own life, right, does that affect my fellowship with God negatively? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. And so I don't think he's talking about salvation here because I think he says continue in the faith. He's talking about Jesus. He's made this case that Jesus saves us. And so if you continue in the faith, really has to do with our fellowship with God, grounded in steadfast, and we're not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so we have the freedom to choose to choose our own will, even as Christians, daily, but we need to live lives characterized as holy, blameless, above reproach. So, this is which Paul became a minister. Paul uh, desired to, to live and serve accordingly, and so do we.
So we don't want to move away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard. We don't want to move away from that. We want to indeed continue in that faith. Verse 24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So here again, this is why I made a big deal about he is completely reconciled. He's, he's done all the work of salvation. You could read this incorrectly and say, oh, the afflictions of Christ, I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. So it's like maybe he was wrong when he said it is finished when he hung on that cross, right? Was he wrong? No, he wasn't wrong. And so the afflictions here that he's talking about is the afflictions of being a Christian, the afflictions of the body of Christ, if you will, the suffering of all Christians. Do Christians suffer? Yeah, Christians suffer. Is that part of it? Yeah, that's part of it. And so uh, that's part of the affliction. And Paul rejoices in his sufferings. And it's okay for us to rejoice in our sufferings as well. You know, we could say God made us to sit together in heavenly places. We're just going to hang out there. But the reality is we all go through hard times, right? So how do, why does God do that? If we're supposed to sit in heavenly places, why do we go through hard times? Turn it back again to Romans. Chapter 5. We've read this many times. I think this is, these, these, these verses are so foundational to our Christian experience. Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, starting in verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we talked about that. We have peace with God. In a sense, we're seated in heavenly places. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we're recipients of God's grace because of Jesus Christ, and we have peace accordingly. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So what do tribulations do in our lives? So we accept that we, we recognize that we're seated in heavenly places. We're kind of hanging out there. And yet we go through hard times. Why do we go through hard times? Well, it may be that at least one of the things, of, sometimes we go through hard times as a consequence of our stupidity, <laughs> right? That's a reality. But sometimes we go through hard times just because. And how does God use those? He uses them because tribulation produces perseverance. Anybody ever notice that? Yes. Would you know perseverance if you never knew tribulation? Probably not. Perseverance grows character, and character, hope, and hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I had an example this week um, come my way. I got permission to share this. Um, but there's a, there's a person I know who lost, a few weeks ago, lost an item. I'm just going to say it's an item. 
that was very, very um, precious to her. All right? Is that fair? You pick whatever item in your mind you want. It's like the, the lady in the scripture who, you know, had 10 gold coins and lost one of them. And she's scouring the house looking for that gold coin, right? Well, it's kind of like that. This lady uh, lost something, okay? Very valuable and looked everywhere, I mean, scoured the house, did the whole nine yards, right? And, and along the way had been praying, Lord, you can... You can make that thing fall out of the sky if you want. You can put that thing wherever you want, if you want. And, um, and yet you're in control, and so she's wrestling through all of this, right? And, and, you know, even a little bit of guilt like I lost it, you know, and you know how you do, right? You guys do that? Beat yourself up over stuff like that? Yeah. So she, you know, beat herself up a little bit. And, uh, and then, lo and behold, this week, she had a time where she had another situation that was very deeply challenging for her. Very deeply. Very, um, yeah, very challenging. We'll just say it that way. And she really now was at a point where she kind of honestly needed to know that God was good. She already knew God was good. Do you guys know that God is good? And she knew God was good, right? But she needed to know it. You know what I'm saying? Like, a, like we're preaching it. She needed to know it, right? And lo and behold, she's praying, Lord, can you, you know, again, you can rain it from wherever you want. And lo and behold, she found this thing in a place where she's convinced, and I would agree with her, it was such a bizarre location that even that, even the location and where she found it was a reminder of the goodness of God that he miraculously put it there. You like that story? Here's why you like that story. Because you know the beginning, the middle, and the end. Right? Back up a minute. Why didn't God just make her not lose it in the first place? It's a reasonable question, right? In my mind, at least. See, I'm here and I'm teaching and you're listening, so I get to tell you why. <laughs> no, this is just in my mind. I believe, with all my heart, God let her go through the pain of losing that thing. God let her go through the pain of beating herself up over having lost that thing. God let her go through all of that and all the whys and all the what are you thinking and why are you doing God and, and don't you know I, this, is, this is significant to me and all of that. He let her go through all of that because he knew that this week she would have an unrelated challenge whereby she needed to know that God is real, God is personal, and God cares about the number of hairs on your head. And so then, having gone through all of that, and now having a very real tangible challenge, oh, God just gave me that thing back. And he put it back in a supernatural place, right? And so could it be 
that God lets us go through things so we can experience and see his goodness and be reminded of his provision during those times when we maybe really need to know that he's there. Right? He could have just said, you know, he could have just made her not lose this thing and would never have experienced any of that. And I say we like this story because we know the beginning, we know the middle, we know the new challenge and the new situation, and we know the end, and we all love a great movie with a great ending, right? The problem is all of life's challenges and victories don't happen that way, do they? Sometimes we'll go through a certain challenge and we'll never see that victory this side of heaven. That's a reality. Sometimes we'll go through the challenge and we just don't know what he's doing. They don't always work start and finish, you know the whole thing. And sometimes we find ourselves in the middle of that thing and yet in that, what's he doing? He's, given us he's teaching us perseverance and character and hope. And he's letting us go through those things so we can develop those qualities, so that, so that he can develop those qualities in our lives. So Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. And we, even though we don't like them, the more we grow in him, the more we reflect his grace and his glory, the more we can say, I rejoice in those things that he lets me go through because that's where I'm learning. That's where I'm experiencing him. That's where I'm learning to abide in him. John chapter 15. And he says, that's what's la he says, I rejoice in my sufferings, what's lacking in the, in the afflictions of Christ, the, the body of Christ, for the sake of his body, which is the church. And so here's the other, the, the ending point of that is we get to encourage the body, the church. The church today is, is edified by this seemingly negative experience, right? Because we know that God is real and we go through things. Second Corinthians chapter one is a great description of this. God allows us to go through things for many reasons. One of them, not the least of which is so we can be an encouragement to others. He allows us to, to go through afflictions so we can encourage others who are going to go through the same afflictions. And how often have we gone through something and then we turn around and realize somebody else is going through the exact same thing? Yeah. Or how often have we been the recipients of that? That's how the body of Christ works. That's why it's important that the body of Christ is connected. Again, I don't want to get off on it too much, but the body of, let's just say this, the body of Christ needs to be connected. Am I clear about that? The body of Christ needs to be connected. This is not, um, you know, there's more, to, there's more to church than listen to me yak for an hour. The body of Christ needs to be connected. It's very important. So he goes on, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So Paul's been given a stewardship. He said, of, I became a minister. The word minister means servant, attendant, waiter at a table or some other menial duty, the, the, definite, the dictionary says. It's not a position of pride. Minister is never a position of pride. It's a position of servitude. And it's according to the stewardship from God. 
You know, we all live as stewards of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, one of my favorite verses, chapter 4, verse 2, says, Moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. And I love the simplicity of that. It's required in stewards that one be found faithful. I'm a steward of this life that God has given me. I'm a steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm a steward of the grace that he's given to me. I can't just like say, good for me, I'm going to heaven. I got to be a steward of that. And I love that what's required in me as a steward, that I be successful, that I accomplish some certain task, that I um, do all the right things, that I, you know, what's required? It's required that I be found faithful. Not successful, not, you know, glamorous, not whatever, faithful. And we are all stewards of the life God has given us. So, being a steward means that God owns us and our lives are given to Him. And so our lives are spent glorifying Him and building up His body, and we do that faithfully. And let me just say this as Christians. Let me say this as Christians. The greatest fulfillment as Christians is in recognizing we are a steward that's to be used to glorify Him and bless others. What did Jesus say? It's better to what? Give than to receive, right? If we live our lives like, hey, I'm saved. That's awesome. I'm going to heaven. I can, you know, be a pretty good guy, you know, because that's what I was before. I wasn't an alien. I was just a pretty good guy. Now I'm a pretty good guy saved. And, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I still got my own agenda. And I want to, you know, I've, I've got my sights set on my, you know, my, my goals and my bucket list and my this and my that. And, you know, and I'm, and I'm kind of moving along that road of life. And when I'm done, I'll get to heaven. Yeah, you might. You probably will, honestly. That's God's business, by the way. But, yeah, it's, I believe it's very possible to be saved that way. But... It's not the greatest fulfillment. I believe with all my heart, the greatest fulfillment is to live others-focused, to live a life that brings glory to God. We ask the, question, ask the question of ourselves, how can I glorify God in my life? How can I be a blessing to others in my life? Not how can I look out for number one and preserve my own self-interests, but how can I bless others and glorify God? Verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So the mystery in this context is this. The greatest fulfillment comes from recognizing we're stewards and giving our lives away. And it's revealed to us through the life of Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus had everything. He was in heaven. He could have just stayed there and took care of himself, right? But he gave himself away. He gave his life away literally. Gave his life away day by day along the way. And that mystery is now revealed to us as his saints. And we see this in life, right? We see this. The more that, that there are some of us that understand and recognize and live accordingly that I'm, I'm a steward of this life. And I'm, my purpose is to glorify God and to bless others. And that's pretty much the extent of what my stewardship means. And yet we live in a world that that's backwards, right? 
The world looks out for number one. The world has hopes and dreams. The world has, you know, accomplishments they got to do, things they got to achieve, things that, that they want to get a leg up on life. And the idea of stewardship is foreign to them. So that's why it's a mystery. Verse 27, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope and glory. And so he gives now this opportunity to remind us, Christ in you, the hope and glory, that's our hope. It's available to both Jew and Gentile, which, so if we're Gentiles in the room today, that's, that's good news for us. But this is available to everyone. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we, are, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And so, you know, this mystery has been revealed to us, then we should desire to share it with others. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So, he labors, that's a responsibility word, right? But he labors only in the context of understanding how good God is. And only as he, as he does it in that context is it fulfilling as it should be. One, one last scripture I want to turn to. Turn over to Philippians, first book to the left. You know, Paul says, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So who's doing the work, Paul or God? He says, I labor, and he said, God works in me mightily. So who's doing the work? Well, I love, the, I love this verse in Philippians, chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. This is the, to me, this is the greatest responsibility, sovereignty passage. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's responsibility. Work out your own salvation. Do we work for our salvation? No, but we can work out our salvation. We work out of the fact that we are saved and that is settled. We don't earn our salvation, but we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For, that's because word, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure right? God works in us to will, that gives us the desire, and to do, that gives us the ability. God gives us the desire to do what's right. And we could all attest to that. We want to do what's right. And he also gives us the ability to do what's right. Sometimes we walk in that and sometimes we don't. But God gives us the desire and the ability to do what's right, it's, and it's God that works in us both to will and to do. Why? For his good pleasure. It's all for his glory. And so, therefore, we work out our own salvation accordingly. We live this daily grind. We 
do the right thing because God's working in us. So who's doing the work? Us or God? Well, that's a mystery, right? It's a mystery. But our responsibility is to be faithful. I think of it as we work as if it's dependent upon us. We work as if, as if our salvation depends on us, but we recognize that it doesn't. Does that make sense? We work out our own salvation. We do what's right. We, we try to make good decisions. We try to be responsible. When we fail, we repent and get back up on our feet and do it again. And we try to be faithful and put one foot in front of the other till the day we die. But we recognize that God is doing all that work in us. So, to this end is how he says, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So, Colossians 1. Jesus is the, invisible, is the image of invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. He created everything, uh, visible and invisible. He's above all things. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body of Christ. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, having preeminence. It pleased the Father that all the fullness of, should dwell in him. And by him to reconcile all things, he saved us. He came to the earth bodily and died on a cross physically and then resurrected. He gave us his example. You know, he gave us his example. He could have just come and died, right? But he gave us those years of his life and his ministry and all we read in the Gospels as an example of abundant life through sacrifice, and now we are stewards of that life. We're stewards of the knowledge of His goodness. We're stewards of His grace. We're stewards of the life He's given us. And as stewards, we recognize, I'm not a steward of your life, and you're not a steward of my life. My life has a unique set of resources and challenges, relationships, situations, experiences, right? It's called my life. And it's unique. Nobody shares, nobody, nobody shares all of those things that I share. And nobody shares all those things that you share. We've all been given this life and we're stewards of this life that we've been given. And it's all for the glory of God and for the edification, the building up of others. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you saved us. We thank you that the work of salvation is done and we don't have to strive. We don't have to earn favor with you. We don't have to earn points with you. We don't have to earn anything with you. Lord, we are seated in heavenly places. Our hope is secure in the heavens. And yet, Lord, we have a life, and we have things that should be out of focus that sometimes tend to come into focus more clearly than they should. And so, Lord, we ask that you would just help us to abide in you, help us to fix our eyes on you, the author and finisher of our faith, and help us to live as good stewards, as faithful stewards of the life that you've given to us, Lord. We well, thank you for the privilege of it. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.